0: The story was told that at some point in the 1700s in the county of Cornwall in the southwest of England before the days of the evangelical revival that there was a small village that did not even possess a copy of the Bible. The only religious book in the village was said to be a copy of the Book of Common Prayer which may be helpful in its way but it was kept in the village tavern. And once there was a terrible storm. And all the people in the village feared that the world was coming to an end. And so they ran to the tavern where the Book of Common Prayer was in hopes that the tavern keeper, a man named Tom, would read a prayer for them and that they'd be protected from the storm. So the tavern keeper picked up a book and began reading about storms and wrecks and rafts until his wife said, Tom... That's Robinson Crusoe. And he responded, no, it is the prayer book, and kept on reading. And eventually he kept on reading, and I'm not overly familiar with Robinson Crusoe, but apparently there's a a character in the book named Friday, and he came to the point where he was describing this man Friday, and his wife spoke up again saying that she was certain that he was reading Robinson Crusoe. And the tavern keeper said, well, well, suppose I am. There are as good a prayers in Robinson Crusoe as in any other book. And so he kept on reading until the storm was over, and it is said that all of the people then went their separate ways with great composure of mind, believing that they had done their duty. Sometimes people can be self-deceived and self-satisfied with religious observances that really don't matter. Now, Nothing terribly wrong with reading Robinson Crusoe, but to think that this is a manner of religious observance that will deliver you from the judgment of God is foolish. As we come to Amos chapter 4, we find people in a similar, although I would say much worse, state who were devoutly carrying on their religious observances, thinking, thinking, perhaps by them that they would be delivered from judgment, that they would be granted good blessings. But, in fact, they were sinning. They were multiplying their transgressions. And so if you would turn with me, please, in your Bibles to Amos chapter 4, as we consider this chapter in God's Word this morning, Amos chapter 4. Amos writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountains of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness. Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her. And you will be cast to harmon, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I would withheld rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. Then I would send rain on one city, and on another city I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water but would not be satisfied yet you have not returned to me declares the lord i smote you with scorching wind and mildew and caterpillar and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards fig trees and olive trees yet you have not returned to me declares the lord i sent a plague among you after the manner of egypt i slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses And I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel. Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God. O Israel, for behold, he who forms mountains and creates wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now, as we look to this chapter this morning, we'll consider it under two main headings. First, reject false worship, and secondly, prepare to meet your God. So, first of all, reject false worship, and secondly, prepare to meet your God. Now, beginning in verse 1, we see this denunciation that is directed against the wealthy and oppressive Israelites. This denunciation may be uh, directed against women in particular. Uh, as perhaps indicated by the latter half of the verse uh, when these whom Amos are addressing are said to say to their husbands, bring now that we may drink. Alternatively, the word that's translated by our modern translations as husbands could also be translated perhaps as, as masters as was done in the old King James Version in which case the oppressors here denounced would be the wealthy Israelites more broadly who were saying to those in authority, Over them, bring now that we may drink. And we need to catch in the flow of the text what is going on here. And so in chapter 3, verse 15, we had just left off uh, describing these summer houses and winter houses, these houses of ivory and great houses, these Wonderful places would offer no refuge when God's judgment came on the nation. They would all be destroyed. And so it seems that the prophet moves from speaking of the great houses, chapter 3, verse 15, to speaking of the inhabitants of those houses there in 4, verse 1. And uh, it seems like he's speaking about the women or perhaps the wealthy more broadly and then describes the judgment that will come upon them in verses 2 and 3. And so what are these women are these wealthy ones like well amos likens them to the cows of bashan bashan was a region located east of the jordan that was a fertile area noted for its cattle the choiceness of the cattle and livestock of that region is hinted at in ezekiel 39, 17 and 18. And in Ezekiel 39, the Lord is summoning the birds of the air and the beasts of the field to feast on those who would be killed in battle at the end time at Gog. And the Lord says to entice the birds and beasts to come and eat. He says this, you will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of princes of the earth as though they were rams, lambs, Goats and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. The idea is that the livestock of Bashan is really quite well fed, quite lusty, quite strong, quite fat. And so in comparing these women or these wealthy ones of Israel to the cows of Bashan, the Lord is, is getting at the fact that these people are well fed and pampered. Their bodies are well cared for. And they're described as ordering their husbands around, bringing them something to drink. But from all that is said here, it appears that their souls are quite lean. Their souls are starving. These women fit in with the rest of the upper crust of Israelite society in those days by means of their oppression of the poor and the way that they crushed the needy. They lived off of the expense of others. And while they thrived, they crushed others down into the dust. The Old Testament scholar Alec Matier observed that women are the trendsetters in society. They have ever been the final guardians of morals, fashions, and standards. Consequently, Amos can isolate the heartbeat of society by examining its typical women. And Isaiah would later do the same in his own days. We find in Isaiah 3, verses 16 and 17 and following. The Lord says there through Isaiah, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs, and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. And so in short, the, the women described here are not at odds at all with their society. They embody and personify the society in which they live to a T. And what is that picture of that society? It's a picture of self-indulgence, luxury, and oppression. Hence the judgment that is coming as described there in verses 2 and 3. Now, scholars are divided concerning the precise meaning of all that is exactly being conveyed in those verses, but it's clear that whatever it is, This is not good. The people are going to be led away into judgment, namely to the nation of Assyria. It was going to be ugly. It was not going to be pretty at all. They would be led away into captivity as with hooks. They would leave their city through the breaches in the wall, the holes that had been created by the enemies who came upon them. And in that day, all of their fine houses, all of their wealth, all of the oppression that they had Uh, put down upon others, all of the bodily care that they had taken for themselves, all of those things would profit them nothing on that day. Wealth and earthly status was not going to keep anyone safe. There's only one safe place to go. There's only one refuge in which to take shelter on the day of judgment, and that is in the Lord himself. The problem here, however, is that these people had continually refused to take refuge in the Lord. Despite all that had come upon them, they refused. And we'll see this as we move forward in the chapter. And so we see their, their false worship there in verses 4 and 5. Amos gives them an ironic command, and as he does so, he pours sarcasm on their idolatrous worship. He tells them to go on performing it, to go on performing this self-made worship. Now, obviously, the Spirit-inspired prophet is not being serious about this. He's not actually encouraging them to worship idols. Rather, he's, he's mocking them and he's showing them how pointless their worship is. These people had been fairly devout in doing what they were doing in offering these offerings and bringing these sacrifices and tithes, but they were completely unconcerned about the will of God in doing so. And despite all that they did, their doings did not deliver them from judgment. We find in verse 5 that they brought thank offerings from things which were leavened. According to Exodus 23, 18, the Old Testament law forbid the offering of blood together with leavened bread. Leviticus 7.12 required that for thank offerings unleavened cakes of bread be offered, though with peace offerings for thanksgiving, the worshiper was to present his offering with cakes of leavened bread, and those cakes of leavened bread then were to belong to the priest. And so depending upon the circumstances, sacrifices containing leaven may or may not have been legitimate per the letter of the law. Now given Amos' sarcastic tone here and the scorn which he is pouring out upon their worship, it seems uh, that there's a good chance that Amos is here talking about an illegitimate sacrifice, that they are bringing offerings from that which is leavened when according to the law it should have been offering unleavened bread. And the latter portion of verse 5 indicates that their religious practice also involved their own self-satisfaction. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. In other words, these people seem to be broadcasting their religious observances and proclaiming them, making them known, wanting people to see what they are doing. They're doing these things to to be seen by man. Christ tells us that when... We are serving the Lord. We're not to be doing so to be seen by man. Those who do those things receive their reward in full right here. Yeah, that is completely wrong. And then, to make matters worse, we see at the end of the verse the Lord says, For so you love to do. In other words, these people are performing all of these religious observances because they love to do it. It makes them happy. They want to be seen and heard, they wanted to please themselves. They're doing this for themselves and not for the Lord. This is false worship. People are just doing what they wanted to do and were deceived into thinking that their religious efforts would be beneficial to them. But it was not beneficial to them. Indeed, why would we expect God to bless false worship? Worship which had uh, not been directed toward Him in accordance with His word, but was rather simply devised by the people to please themselves. The Lord is very clear in his word that he wants the hearts of his people. We saw that in our unison reading from 1 Samuel 15. Now, the Lord certainly commanded the externals of worship that were to be performed, but the externals were not enough. He wants the hearts. And when he has the hearts of his people, that will then be evident by the obedience that is then rendered from their hearts. And so we find this... And this idea expressed in a couple of places in the Prophets. So Hosea 6.6, 6, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Likewise, Micah 6.6-8, With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to Him with burnt offerings and yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams, in ten thousand rivers of oil, Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Now, in short, the sacrifices were commanded by the Lord in the law for sin offerings and guilt offerings as, and as a means of, of thanking and worshiping the Lord. And as such, they were to be performed by the worshiper. But those things were meaningless when not accompanied by a heart that was intent on turning from sin and following the Lord. Even sacrifices that were offered according to the letter of the law meant nothing. Now these were offered contrary to the letter of the law, but even in the case of sacrifices offered in accordance with the law, it meant nothing if the one offering the sacrifice had no love for the Lord and no loyalty toward him. The kind of worship which Amos mocks here in verses 4 and 5 certainly not done out of love and loyalty to the Lord. It was carried out in an unlawful place, in an unlawful way, with a self-pleasing motivation. And this kind of worship is worthless. It does nothing to deliver them from the judgment of God. It did not facilitate the return of the people to the Lord as the following verses make clear. What it did was actually only to continue and further the rift that existed between the people and God. And so it is that Amos says there in verse 4, Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgressions. What the people were doing in their worship at Bethel and Gilgal was actually making their situation worse. And we need not think that the Old Testament times had a monopoly on this kind of external, self-made, self-pleasing worship. There have been plenty of people professing uh, to be Christians who make much of the externals of worship and who delight in observing a prescribed ritual that goes well above and beyond anything that is required by Scripture, and yet who at the same time willfully hold on to their sins and do not truly love the Lord. J.C. Ryle once said that such worship may suit a bandit who oscillates between Lent and Carnival, between fasting and robbing, but it ought never to satisfy a Bible-reading Christian. And what is worse is there have been people who are pastors and others who are advocates of strong and sound doctrine and who are advocates of biblical worship who at the same time hold on to sins in which they revel in secret. The worship of such is unacceptable to the Lord. The Pharisees of old were not the only ones who strained out gnats and swallowed camels. Now in saying this, Let me not be misunderstood. I'm not saying this at all to belittle the externals of outward worship. In the Old Testament times, the Lord commanded the temple worship. The Lord instituted the Old Testament sacrificial system. And as such, they were to be observed according to His word. But again, the externals alone were insufficient if the heart and soul of the person were not really there. And the same is true for us in the New Testament times. Our Lord has commanded us to worship worship. Externally, He has commanded that we gather with the church, that his word is to be read and preached, that there are to be prayers and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, that baptism and the Lord's Supper are to be observed. These are what we might call the external forms of worship. They matter. They are not to be disregarded. But they are insufficient and unpleasing to the Lord if the hearts of people are not truly there, worshiping the Lord and not truly coming to him. The Lord wants your heart. He wants true repentance and true faith, true faith in Christ, faith which manifests itself in obedience and godly fruit. Otherwise, without those things, true faith working itself out in love, all our religious observances count for nothing and judgment is coming, as the rest of this chapter makes clear. Now, I make this point in regard to the externals of worship and the corresponding requirement of true faith and repentance, true love for the Lord, because errors abound in this area. On the one hand, some people sometimes fall into formalism, when someone just formally goes through the external motions. Maybe they show up at church, they hear the sermon, they commune in the Lord's Supper, but their hearts are really actually very far from the Lord. And that's no good. And then on the other hand, on the flip side... There's also something unacceptable. Some people might be quick to claim a love for God and a faith in Christ while at the same time being reticent to participate in the outward and external worship in the life of the church. Do they love Jesus? Sure, I love Jesus. Do you go to church? No. Do you love the body of Christ? That's a good question. These two must go together. Our Lord commands His church to gather together and to worship And he also requires us to seek him with all of our hearts. The two must go hand in hand. If one is lacking, the picture is incomplete and something is wrong. Now, as we proceed in the text to the second part of the chapter, beginning in verse 6, we'll be be coming to our second point, which is, prepare to meet your God. In verses 6 through 11, we see how the Lord sent calamity on the people of Israel in various ways, But it was all sent upon them to induce them to repent and return to the Lord. Notice there in the text, there's the fivefold repetition of the words, Yet you have not returned to me. That shows up five times there in the text verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. The Lord brought punishment upon the people of Israel in a variety of ways. Verse 6, they were exposed to hunger due to lack of food. Their teeth were clean, which means they hadn't been eating. They had been, in verse 7 and 8, exposed to drought. Verse 9, exposed to scorching winds and insects which destroyed their crops. Verse 10, they'd been exposed to military defeats in which their young men were slain. And uh, you see... Some places in Old Testament history, the military defeats of the northern kingdom in places like 2 Kings 10, 32 and 33, 2 Kings 13, verse 7, and 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7, Samaria was uh, besieged by the Arameans such that uh, the food was was gone and cannibalism had started to break out among the people. Verse 11 alludes to great destruction which had fallen "...upon Israel, from which they had been somewhat spared. They had suffered some great calamity, which can be likened to the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but they didn't suffer the full effects of it. They'd been snatched like a firebrand from the blaze of the fire. They had been spared from the full possible effects of what had come upon them. But yet, despite all of these things which are described here, they did not return to the Lord." Despite the Lord's kindness in delivering them, even kind of bringing destruction and then pulling them away from the worst of that destruction, snatching them like a firebrand out of the blaze, they did not return to the Lord. In all of these things that the Lord brought upon the people, He was calling out to them. He was trying to get their attention, trying to get them to return, but they did not return. They refused to take the hint and they refused to learn from what was happening to them. Instead, they continued on in their sinful paths, and though they deserved judgment, and though the Lord had sworn by His holiness, as we see up in verse 2, that that judgment was coming, even still, the Lord was, in His kindness, still calling the people back to Him. He was still calling them to repent and return, and thus to call them back from their sinfulness to Himself. The Lord says in verse 12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel... Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. And the sense of what Amos is saying here seems to be this. In light of the judgment that is going to come upon you, now is the time for you to prepare to meet your God. Now is the time to get right before the Lord. Before the judgment falls, there's this window of opportunity. Make use of it now. Prepare to meet your God. Calvin uh, Calvin paraphrased the latter half of verse 12 By saying, however worthy you are of being destroyed, and though the Lord seems to have closed the door of mercy and despair meets you on every side, you can still mitigate God's wrath, provided you prepare to meet him. There's a a window here of opportunity. So prepare yourself. This preparation includes heartfelt sorrow for sin a turning away from that sin to the Lord and seeking the forgiveness of God and then seeking to walk with him because he is merciful. Despite everything that was in their past, there was a way forward for these people if they would but take it. Prepare to meet your God. And then, as if to remind them who this God is, Amos declares to them the identity of God there in verse 13. He's the God who is the great creator, who formed the mountains and the wind. He's the God who knows the innermost things about us. He can declare to men what their thoughts are. Psalm 139, Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. He makes the dawn into darkness. He treads on the high places of the earth because he is over all of the earth. This is the Lord of hosts. And it is this God who bid rebellious Israel to prepare to meet him, the creator and sovereign of all that is, the one who knows each of us in a way that no one else does. There's no hiding and no escape from him. He is the great and only God, and he promises judgment upon the unrepentant. And at the same time, he invites those who up to this very moment have been his enemies to turn around and to prepare to meet him. And all who would prepare to meet him in true faith and repentance would be welcomed and received. They would receive mercy and grace. And the good news is that this offer still stands today. For all who will prepare themselves to meet God. Now, we need to learn from this chapter, especially the latter half, verses 6 through 13, that sometimes the Lord sends hardships to us. Sometimes the Lord disciplines us, and his purpose in them is often to wake us up, to cause us to repent and return. Sometimes the Lord sends these temporal and earthly judgments as discipline upon believers to help us to see our sin and to repent of it and to return to walking in fellowship with the Lord, sometimes the Lord sends these temporal judgments on unbelievers to help them to see their sin and their need of a Savior and bring them for the first time to saving faith. Now we'll speak more of this here in just a moment. But at the outset, we need to be very clear that sometimes the Lord brings hardships into the lives of believers for other reasons as well. It's not just to cause us to repent of our sin. Many times it's that. Often, there are other causes. Sometimes these things come upon us to try our patience. They come for the Lord to test us and to try us and to help us to grow. Sometimes they come upon us for the example of others, so that we can show our brothers and sisters in Christ how to faithfully walk when we're facing trials. Sometimes hardships come upon us for the purpose of testing and trying us, as was the case with Job. In such a case, when trials come upon us and we're tested as to whether we are true believers in Christ or whether we are merely mercenary hypocrites. And for those who are true believers, they are strengthened and brought through that trial by the grace of God, and they are strengthened and made more holy and more like Christ in the midst of the trial. So all of that caveat to say that when we suffer as believers, we need to be thoughtful and careful about the conclusions that we reach regarding our sufferings. Sometimes they may be brought upon us by God for the purpose of drawing us to repent And return from some specific sin. Sometimes the Lord brings hardship for other reasons. And we need to be thoughtful and careful about evaluating the situation in which we find ourselves. And we also need to be thoughtful and careful about evaluating the situation of others when we find them in difficulties. We need to learn a lesson from the friends of Job and not be them when we find someone else in a very trying time. Let's not automatically conclude that when someone is facing a trial, the reason they are facing it is because they are necessarily in sin. Let's not be that kind of a friend. But with that caveat made, please understand that the Lord does use hardships of various kinds to announce to people that they are on the road to destruction. He uses it to announce to them that the wages of sin is death, and if they keep going the way they are going, they're going to die. It is of utmost importance, then, that when we find ourselves suffering, we look into our situation and respond appropriately. If we have strayed from the Lord, we must return to Him. Now, we sang earlier from Psalm 107, Psalm 107 is an epic of a psalm, and if you're familiar with that psalm, it describes four groups of men. It describes the uh, one that we sang about the first group, those who wandered in the wilderness, who were hungry and thirsty with their souls fainting within them. There were others who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, who were prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the Lord. There were fools also who were afflicted with uh, misery because of their rebellious ways and their iniquities, and there were those who sailed the sea and were then assailed by a violent storm. And what do we find happened to these men in Psalm 107? The Lord brought these hardships and these various difficulties into their lives. What did they do? Well, there's a there's a wonderful fourfold repetition in Psalm 107 it forms an interesting contrast to the fivefold repetition that we find here the fivefold repetition here is yet you have not returned to me the fourfold repetition in Psalm 107 Psalm 107 verse 6 verse 13 verse 19 and verse 28 is this then they cried to the Lord in their trouble and he brought them out of their distresses Psalm 107 describes the people who got it They had their ears on, and they were listening to what the Lord was communicating in their suffering. They came to understand that the wages of sin is death, and that they were on the road to death. And because of their sins, the Lord then brought them into those distressing circumstances, and God's purpose in doing so was to draw them to Himself. Those people got it. They cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and the Lord delivered them out of all of their distresses people here in Amos chapter 4 did not get it. Despite all that they had gone through, despite all that the Lord had put them through, they did not listen. And as such, the people in Amos chapter 4 are a bleak foreshadowing of the people of the end times that we read of in the book of Revelation. So for instance, Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of their works so as not to worship demons and idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Let me see something similar in Revelation 16:10 and 11, where men are suffering horribly under the wrath of God while still here on this earth. And yet, instead of repenting and returning to the Lord, instead they blaspheme God because of what they are suffering, and they do not repent of their deeds. And so friends, I don't know what all of you are facing in your lives this morning. I know at least some of what some of you are facing. But I certainly don't know every difficulty and struggle that every one of you is facing. And so not knowing all of the specifics of what you're facing, I certainly do not have insight into the specific reason why God in his providence has brought that into your life but in light of what we see in the text here in Amos 4 let me say this don't be foolish don't miss the opportunity to learn and to profit from these trials suffering is bad enough as it is but what's worse than suffering a trial is suffering through that trial and being none the better for it on the other side And that's what was going on here with the Israelites. They had suffered all of these things the hunger, the drought, the crop failure, the scorching winds, the insects, the military defeat, the overthrowing of their cities and people. And at the end of the day, they had nothing to show for all that they had been through. Spiritually speaking, they were none the better for it. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. And the point that I would make this morning is this don't be foolish, don't let the hardships come upon you for nothing. Rather, let those trials serve as a catalyst for you to look into your heart and to see what is going on inside, and if need be, repent and return to the Lord. As we said earlier, we must not make the mistake of assuming that every trial always corresponds to a sin. Not all of them do, but some of them do. And woe to us if we behave as the people described here in Amos 4. This is foolishness. This is stubbornness. Let's not do it. Rather, let's return to the Lord. Let's look to our hearts, search ourselves, and see if there are, is anything that is amiss within us. And if in searching we can find nothing that is amiss, let's take the words of David in Psalm 139 to our lips, where he says to the Lord, "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there is any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way.'" Sometimes we don't necessarily have enough insight to see our sins. And so we need to ask the Lord to help us to see our sins. And whether we find a sin from which we must turn or not, let's use the opportunity presented in the trial as an opportunity to walk more closely with the Lord. If you've not been walking with God at all, now's the time to start. If you have been then now is the time to walk even more closely with the Lord, to seek Him in His word and prayer, and to make use of the means of grace and the life of the church, to seek close fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. We must not be foolish in the way that we handle our trials. We have to make use of them as a means by which we return to the Lord. If I may borrow the words of Hosea chapter 10, verse 12, so with a view to righteousness... And reap in accordance with kindness. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes to rain righteousness on you. Now, when scripture talks about fallow ground, it's talking about a field that has been left unplowed for for some time. And if you've ever been around a field that's been left unplowed, you'll know that it grows up with, with all kinds of weeds. Even young saplings and little trees start to grow in it. And In order for good crops to grow, all of that bad stuff has to be plowed down and done away with. The soil has to be broken up. And so the word through Hosea says to break up your fallow ground. Sometimes our hearts and our lives are very much like those fields that are left untended. And all kinds of unhelpful things start to grow in them. And the word of God commands us to break up the fallow ground and to sow with a view to righteousness. It's time to seek the Lord, is what Hosea says, until he comes to reign righteousness on us. Now, even if we find no particular sin of which we must repent, we should still use that trial as an opportunity to draw close to the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we saw in our reading from Matthew 11, calls all of those who are weary and heavy laden to himself. Christ is the one who gives rest to sinners. And the reason Christ can do this is because he himself suffered in order to pay the debt which sinners owe to God. All who are apart from Christ will be crushed by the weight of their guilt from their sins. There are temporal consequences that come to people because of their sins and there are eternal consequences awaiting in hell for all who perish in their sins. There's no rest for the wicked in hell. But Christ invites you to come to him, to be freed from your burdens, freed from your sins. and So turn to Christ. Find rest, forgiveness, and eternal life in him. As we find in verse 12, prepare to meet your God. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us, that we would learn the right lesson, the lesson that you're seeking to teach us from the difficulties that you bring into our lives, we pray. Lord, that whatever we're facing, that it would lead us to lean more upon you, to walk more closely with you, to be more earnest in repentance and in prayer and seeking you. Lord, we praise you for your merciful kindness that you still give us this window of opportunity to repent, to believe, to look to Christ and walk with you. We pray, Lord, that everyone here would make use of that and prepare to meet you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.